वेलकम टू सेंट टॉक सेंट टॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द इनविजिबल इनविजिबल हैंड विल थिंक अबाउट द नोशन ऑफ इनविजिबल हैंड एज अ कॉन्सेप्ट एंड अ मेटाफॉर whether and how do individual self interested actions lead to social good is there a trade off between achieving efficiency and fairness why is the invisible hand often invisible how are individuals different from groups in this context can evolutionary thinking impact questions of economics are all market failures similar in some way How does natural selection work? What do self-interested people want as a group? Where does justice come from? Can invisible hand be made to work? And what is the long-term future of selfishness and social well-being? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Professor Amitabh Joshi is basically a poet who does science in his spare time. Professor Bindu Puri, she is a political philosopher and a Gandhian. She teaches at JNU New Delhi. And Professor Devraj Ray, he is a professor of economics and game theory at New York University. so debraj maybe we set the ball rolling with you um and we'll start at the cliched place and see where we go from there what is the invisible hand why is it often misunderstood what are the parts of it which are misunderstood most often what is the invisible hand to you as an economist sure uh i should say it's a pleasure to be here um thank you and i look forward to this discussion so the invisible hand is a phrase that we normally associated with the work of adam smith mm-hmm. it's a particular type of economic philosophy before i explain it i should say very clearly that i am not a believer in free markets mm-hmm. but uh in order to understand what the invisible hand is we have to enthusiastically describe it first right. so i'm going to enthusiastically describe it without giving you an impression that i'm for it so Imagine I'm selling my labor on the market. The labor is worth 100 rupees an hour to me. It's worth 200 rupees an hour to you. The task of a market price is to settle somewhere between 100 and 200 rupees. As a result of which the person who values the labor at 200 gets to keep the labor for his own use. The person who values it at 100 in this example the supplier of labor gives it up. what if the market price were to settle at 300 rupees then neither you would get it nor i would get it i would give my labor up to the market for 300 rupees but that means there's some other people out there who value it for more than 300 rupees right what if the market price was 70 rupees right in that case i would not give up my labor 
But that's because I value it more than anybody else out there. Yeah. I believe that at the cost of some oversimplification, the essence of the idea of the invisible hand, that markets promote efficiency in a particular sense that I can talk more about later on, the essence of the invisible hand is hidden here. Um, that prices serve as some sort of magic wand which separates people who demand a product at a higher value than people who supply that product, or vice versa, and therefore creates an allocation where the product goes to the person who values it the most. So, Debraj, in this example, the invisible hand would always settle between 100 and 200? No, because as I said, there may be third parties who demand the, my labor at a higher price, which is when the invisible hand would settle at 300 right. or somewhere there, or it could be settling at 70, in which case you are not in the picture either. Okay? Right. It's going to go somewhere else. Then we're talking of a slightly abstract notion of labor. And in not this example, we're talking about a, uh, about a particularly abstract notion of labor. So uh, so that's that's the basic heart of it, okay? But now I want to try and pick it apart a little bit. Mm -hmm. So there are several questions here. Mm -hmm. One is, what is it that made you value that labor more than me? Mm -hmm. The second question is, what was invisible about this story? Mm -hmm. Okay. So let me take these two questions one by one. Yeah. Okay. So to do the first question, let me consider an example. Mm -hmm. Suppose you and I... Or suppose I, I, you know, I like to bid at auctions. Recently, I bid at an auction where my one of my favorite painters, Abhinandanath Tagore, one of his paintings was being auctioned. Okay. Now imagine that I'm bidding against another person who has exactly the same income or wealth than I that I do. Okay, let's say that person is you. Sure. And I bid ten lakhs for Abhini. You bid fifteen lakhs for Abhini. You get it. Okay. In this case, where you and I have exactly the same income and the wealth, it is absolutely clear that your valuation for Aubany's painting is higher than mine, and somehow that the auction has achieved an efficient allocation in the sense that we, that the person on the street understands what efficiency. So, is. what is efficiency? Means that the that the object actually goes to someone with a higher valuation for it. Okay. In, in in this particular example. So in this in this case, uh, both the seller and the buyer are. The, most the, the, the seller matched. is a third party. Is the auctioneer. We are talking about the competition between two buyers. Sure. For example. Now, but to finish the example, imagine that you were not sitting there, but Ambani was sitting there. Mm -hmm. And I still passionately love Ambani. I'm still willing to bid ten lakhs for it. Mm -hmm. And Ambani is mildly interested in Ambani. Yeah, and oh, an mild interesting painter, an interesting. Yeah, I'll drop fifteen lakhs for him. For him, fifteen lakhs means nothing. Yeah. So he will drop fifteen lakhs. He will outbid me. Yeah. Now comes the question of whether the market has done something efficient. It's clearly taken the painting away from me, who values it passionately, to another person who's willing to drop more money for it. Because that person has an enormous amount of money in the first place. So the initial endowments matter. And the so. initial endowment matters. Now, here comes the difficult question. Is this outcome efficient? The answer, oddly enough, now runs counter to our traditional notions of efficiency. Mm -hmm. Adam Smith would say, yes, 
the outcome is still efficient. Mm -hmm. And it's to understand this, which is a more subtle point, right, that we should first send, spend some time on understanding what exactly is this notion of efficiency when something obviously unfair seems to have happened. Mm -hmm. okay? Replace Albany by healthcare uh, or by schooling and the, and the injustice of this situation looks even more egregious, right? Is there a way of understanding efficiency without leaning on fairness? That's exactly right. There is a way. And that's what I want to first talk about. But is, there, is, there a, is there a way, Amitabh, in which the notion of efficiency has some meaning in, for you as a biologist? Well, efficiency... It's probably linked to the notion of energy. Or well, to us, has as evolutionary biologists, has a very simple meaning in terms of your effective rate of producing offspring. So it's it's closely linked to Darwinian fitness rather than energy. Uh, a physicist could talk about efficiency in terms of either time efficiency or energy efficiency. Right. Some form. But for us, it would be Darwinian fitness. And what is the analogical concept of invisible hand for you as a biologist? Well, in biology, and I, I should say as a start that economics and bio, evolutionary biology have actually sort of cross-pollinated quite a bit historically. Uh, in biology, the invisible hand is usually used to refer to the situation where let's say you have individuals of a species that normally live in coherent groups. Mm -hmm. So then the argument is if natural selection is acting among individuals, for example, competition among individuals within a group, and natural selection is also perhaps acting between groups, as in competition between groups, then very often the invisible hand in, in evolution would actually be the selection that's acting between the groups because that can sometimes drive outcomes at the level of what the groups look like, what the group characteristics look like. But wouldn't there be invisible hand at work intra-group as well? Well, it's not usually invoked thought in that of in yes. that way or invoked in that way because that is where you expect traditionally selection to operate. So in that sense, that's where you expect to see it. So it's not really that invisible. But between groups when selection is acting, especially when it is directing the outcome of what kinds of group characteristics evolve, and this is especially important for social behaviors, for example. So if the between-group selection causes group outcomes to evolve which could not be predicted from the individual-level selection, that is what is usually referred to as an invisible hand in the context of evolution. Although, to be f frank, that phrase is not used very much. Right, right, right. And how are individuals different from groups? Well, groups are collections of individuals. Sure. Uh, the point is that... I mean it at the level of this theorizing that we're attempting to do. Yeah. So the point is that for selection to act, basically selection happens whenever you have entities which make copies of themselves at different rates. Sure. Uh, so two, two bank accounts, one with a 5% rate of interest, one with a 10% rate of interest, after enough time, 99% of your money is in the second bank account. That's also natural selection. Mm. It doesn't have to involve organisms. Mm. There is natural selection between computer viruses. Mm. The ones that replicate faster predominate the internet space. Mm. 
so selection requires basically so what is what is natural selection amitabh i think of course all of us have a notion natural that, selection is basically an epiphenomenon or a byproduct if you like of making copies uh, so any time there are entities which are making copies of themselves it could be a religious ideology gaining new converts as mm-hmm. i said could be a bank account could be anything if you're making copies and different entities are doing it at different rates mm-hmm. and those differences in rates are at least partly inherited by the copies that get made then by definition natural selection is occurring is does natural selection have any meaning for you debraj oh yes um so there's an entire parallel literature in economics on mm. natural selections for example um do we select for entrepreneurs who are over optimistic right. that's that's a question uh do we select for entrepreneurs who are dishonest right. is there is there okay so now the interesting question here would be what takes the part of reproductive fitness okay right. so in in biology it would be reproductive fitness right well whichever whichever individual or subspecies reproducing faster gets to win In economics, what's the analog of that? It right. surely is not something like fertility, because this was many sure. many eons ago. Maybe fertility was was an issue. Now there is no correlation between fertility and somebody's uh, economic or socio-economic right. status, right? So here, I think there is um, an interesting difference between biology and economics. So if you don't mind, I'll. What's I'll, the analog? Uh, the yeah, analog yeah. simply would be that uh, if uh, an over-optimistic entrepreneur makes more money. he gets selected the guy who doesn't make money gets driven out um i'll give you another analog what about um the particular ethic of when you meet a stranger be honest okay mm. this is an ethic mm. you can think of this as as a, as 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 a particular genotype in the population and you ask yourself whether this genotype gets selected whether okay. it propagates now itself. yeah now it depends on the kind of interaction you're having right so if you if your interaction is oh, I'll, i'll come to this later is a prisoner's dilemma for example in a prisoner's dilemma this particular genotype will go to hell yeah right in in another interaction for example where honesty is valued like a coordination game this genotype will be selected for yeah Now in the real world we play both prisoners dilemmas and coordination games depends on the so game depend on the percent off. the mix of the games whether honesty is selected for or not okay so up to this point there's a strong parallel between economics and biology but i want to come back to a difference but i'll do so i think maybe. we'll we'll get to the exactly. divergence very soon yeah, yeah. so bindu mm-hmm. why don't we think of this in the context of self interest and selfishness and you know more individual driven approach to interactions in the world and whether that leads to social outcomes and social well-being in the manner that you would think of it so what what does a philosopher in you have to say to this notion of uh, selfishness and whether self-interested actions uh, when aggregated lead to outcomes that might be interesting or just um, obviously there are a bundle of questions here you can pick any one you like and we'll see how it goes well uh, i think that when we are speaking about everybody acting in self interested ways and uh, whether this is going to lead how is it going to work for the group uh, i think first we have to think that if there are people parallelly acting in self interested ways uh, aren't they assuming that they are living in a well ordered society because their self interested actions will not lead to any interest 
uh, which kind if of it was benefits entirely chaotic. Them, yeah. If it was entirely chaotic. Mm. So if we presume that there is this whole framework of a well-ordered society, then we are also further presuming that there are some principles of justice uh, or which they have all, which they are all going to agree to. Now the minute we start... So you're saying that even for selfishness to work, yeah. uh, even in a somewhat limited way, it kind of presupposes a certain kind of social order? Some level of a well-ordered society where there is uh, the possibility of cooperative activity between the people, each of whom is aiming to maximize his or her self-interest. Because if there is not a well-ordered society, then you can't have that self-interest go further at all. Because everybody would be chaotically acting in parallel, let's say, in different ways. So what are the domains and realms where there's cooperation in this kind of a context? No, even, in the, even if you look at economic activity, if there is not some kind of level of uh, cooperation between uh, people, uh, then how would you expect people to benefit from that economic activity? Right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, supposing you are looking at markets, uh, you are assuming cooperation between all the different players in the market. But the notion of a market can just emerge, right? Does it need to be... Um, so even even cooperative behavior can just emerge or or how does it work? Because when we refer to something like the market, what is a market? How does it come to be? I mean, you don't, of course, there is a way in which you can set it up and then people could enter it. But sometimes a bunch of spontaneous interactions could lead to a market, right? Right. So just to go back to the point you were making, I think it's a very important one, which is that... Um, all evolutionary processes, mm -hmm. right, in, in, in society are contextual, okay? So by contextual, I mean that uh, this goes back to the example of the prisoner's dilemma versus the coordination game. Right. You get one trait being selected for in one society, yeah. but perhaps not in the other, right? right? So it's entirely possible that if you have a fully chaotic society, then pure self-interest will be actually selected against, Okay, because pure <laughs> self-interest would just lead you to very myopic behavior that gets you nowhere. So it's entirely possible that in a fully chaotic, let's go back to... So in the, a fully chaotic society, some kind of a cooperation exactly. would emerge. Exactly, so I'm, I'm, that, that, that's the point I'm trying to make, is that if you go back to a purely chaotic society, you may actually have a selection for order. Okay, mm -hmm. or for subgroups, uh, so that selection can't happen at the level of the individual. Going back, but there to would the, be some kind of nucleation. Yeah, yeah. So the collectives that actually maybe king, you know, a uh, 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 structure of a kingdom or a structure of a parliament mm -hmm. would get selected for in this process. Okay, does that make sense to you, Bindu? Yeah, I know. I think uh, first of all, here we seem to be assuming that we can have this purely self-interested economic action. Mm -hmm. And that we can separate it from every other aspect of human life. Uh, first of all, we are creating that schism. And then we are assuming there is the possibility of a society where there is uh, no expectation of any kind of cooperation and no reliance on that when pursuing our self-interest. I don't know how... No, but you know, when we think of interactions, Bindu, an inter at least some action or an interaction could be said to be predominantly economic interaction. It's, it could be said to be predominantly social interaction. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, one doesn't necessarily mean or imply that you have something to say. Can I just yeah. make a brief interjection? Uh, at least from a behavioral biology point of view, mm. uh, if you had a collection of organisms of a species mm -hmm. and there were no 
cooperative interactions between them, we wouldn't call it a society yeah. at all. No, but I mean, whether or not we call it a society is another matter. But I think the question is whether... Not entirely. Not no, I entirely. Think, is it likely for there to be groups of organisms? Now, you could say that I'm just substituting the word society with groups. So it's a trick yeah. of words. But uh, in, in behavioral biology, they have two completely different meanings. Mm -hmm. So a herd of wildebeest mm -hmm. is a group. Mm -hmm. A herd of elephants is a society. Sure. And 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 there are reasons for that. So a society would have some made. hierarchy. Societies have... will have hierarchies and patterns of dominance, patterns of submissiveness. So can they be chaotic groups? But that depends in what sense you're using the word chaotic. Well, I don't know. I if mean, you're you, using you it in a... the technical sense, it would be hard to imagine how a group would be chaotic. Right. Uh, Okay, so I mean, would, would random groups almost always self-select towards some kind of an order is, is, is the notion that we're trying to... Uh -huh. So there, again, if you look at behavioral biology, uh, particularly an area called socio-ecological theory, uh, they try to argue why some animals have evolved the next stage from just being groups, which are sort of homogeneous collections of animals. To having some individual To having social structure. Mm. And it is believed with some amount of evidence supporting this that it has to do with the manner in which resources are distributed, how abundant the resources are and whether they can be hoarded slash guarded. Right. And if you think of human societies from this perspective, uh, that is essentially what agriculture did for us. It gave us the hoardable and guardable resource, uh, you know, to the nth degree. And that also gave us the sort of the freedom and the division of labor that presumably led towards a more civilized existence. It also, all the evidence from the animal kingdom, including our fellow primate species, suggests that all primate societies are despotic and nepotistic. So it's not terribly surprising to a biologist so then, so that then, human societies are despotic and nepotistic. So then there is selfishness at the level of subgroups as opposed to... There's yes, nepotism. usually kin groups. Kin groups. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. so the interesting thing in this perspective is that in some sense, despotism and nepotism could be viewed, perhaps poetically, as the price we have paid for civilization. <laughs> it's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. So, Bindu, I think, yeah. so let's try to go back to this distinction between individuals and groups. Uh, so, when we talk of self-interested actions in the context of individuals, is there a way of uh, extending or deriving group interactions, group behavior, group phenomena from that? We'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, no, I, I was just thinking that if we, uh, you know, if you just... Uh, look at self-interested behavior vis-a-vis -vis developing some kind of uh, society oh. or a group, then you are assuming uh, some kind of level of cooperation between people. And I think notions of fairness and justice would crop up fairly early uh, in order even to resolve clashes of self-interest. And, uh, you know, people will uh, obviously clash if each of them is following his or her own self-interest. How are you going to, uh, you know, solve these disputes? How are you going to take all this forward uh, towards the well-being of the group? Now, one way is that you say all these self-interests aggregated are going to lead to the well-being of the group. But uh, is the happiness of each person put together leading to the greatest happiness of all? This is this is uh, not so. This is uh, this not how it works. So a person like Adam Smith, for example, he was speaking, uh, you know, as a uh, uh, he he 
sort of supported utilitarian ethics, right? And uh, he thought that, uh, so that is the idea that right and wrong actions can be judged on the basis of, uh, you know, whether they promote the happiness of the greatest number. And there are all kinds of problems with such a ethical position. And it's been deeply criticized. And there are problems there again about justice and fairness. So if you think that, you know, that action is the right action, which is going to lead to the greatest happiness of the greatest number, what about the people who are left out? Is this just? Sure, is this sure. fair? And so on. So the whole idea of justice and, you know, fairness and efficiency and how they're different and similar to the other. I mean, um, animal world... Is there a notion of justice, fairness? No. no, there isn't any such thing. No. So it is. It is. It is. So there are th- notions of efficiency. Yes, but, but not of justice and fairness. So I, I think this is a good time actually to come back to the notion of efficiency that's there in Adam Smith. Mm. Okay, um, and after we discuss that, I think it becomes clear exactly what the Smith position is mm. and how it conflicts with the notion of fairness mm. or might coexist in some cases, okay? Is that always a trade-off between efficiency and fairness? No. Again, it I depends on context. conflict sure. or not, right? Sure. So, just go back to the example of the auction that I gave you. In the case where you and I had the same income, yeah. the allocation of the object to you was both efficient and fair. Yeah. In the case where you and I had different incomes, the allocation of the object to you or Ambani was efficient but unfair. Okay, so so they are, these concepts are orthogonal to each other. Yeah. Okay? Now, the concept of efficiency that is actually there, and this was proved many years later by Kenneth Arrow and Gerard Debreu in a, in, a, in a path-breaking paper, the concept of efficiency that's actually hidden inside the Smithian world is a notion of what is called Pareto efficiency. So and nobody me, can be made better off. Both people cannot be made better off yeah, together. Yeah, so it's 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 a vector of outcomes, mm-hmm. and all you can say of the outcome is that you cannot simultaneously make every one of them better off. Better off. Okay. Right. Now observe how weak this notion of efficiency is. Now in the Ambani in the Ambani Debraj thing, <laughs> there was no way to allocate the object so that both Ambani and I are better off, right? Yeah. Um, because Ambani would still be mildly miffed. At having lost his Albany, right? Yeah. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> so it's, it's 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 a very weak notion. Okay, so now no, notice that it's entirely compatible with you and I dividing a cake, and I getting all of it and you getting none of it. Right. right? So we have to first realize that the Smithian notion of the invisible hand is very far from being anything to do with the greatest good for the greatest number. Right. It is just an outcome which you cannot improve mathematically in the vector sense. You cannot make every component of that vector larger. But this also has to do with the nature of the object or the good in question, isn't it? Because in this case, in the case of your Rabindra example, there's just one painting. It's, yes. it's different from a scenario where you refer to commodities. Or, right. And or, so that's the, the so you know that what I mean. is the mathematically astonishing theorem that mm. Arrow and Debreu proved that no matter how many commodities you have, mm. whether or not you have production, mm. um, whether or not we have several people tussling for the same good or not, mm. the market equilibrium is Pareto efficient. Okay. Mm. Now, this is, I want you to appreciate two things. One is that this is a very weak result because as I said, it is compatible with an enormous amount of unfairness. 
Okay. And the second is that there is an important if sitting there in the theorem, which I want to come back to because when we talk more about evolutionary biology, is that there is the assumption that no externalities are inflicted on other individuals. Right. Okay? And later on, I can make, clarify that. Uh, uh, so I, I think as a summary, this is a good enough point where we've gone full circle in describing selection and then telling us what the epitome of that is in a modern society. But in this case, the externality would impact Ambani as well. Okay, so the ex <laughs> an externality is a very difficult concept in the following sense. Let me explain. Suppose that, um, suppose that my wife is pregnant and she's going to the hospital and we are on the road. We are driving very fast, but there's a traffic jam. Okay. Imagine that a magical market opened up whereby we could immediately at the going price. Now, this is a ridiculous example because it won't happen. But imagine for a moment that a magical market were to open up where pregnant women could pay non-pregnant women to get out of the way while the pregnant women, woman went to hospital, right? In that magical case, a market would have been created for people who want to use the road at sure. that moment of time, right? Sure. If that were the case, the outcome would actually be efficient. However, that market doesn't exist, right? That market doesn't exist. You can't just immediately, you know, so, well, sometimes you can, but most of the time you can't. And then it becomes an externality because you are imposing a direct harm or good, depending on the, on, on the situation at hand, on other people, which is not getting monetized. Yeah, so I think that's where it ends up linking to the whole notion of price, right? So if the fundamental mechanism at work is price discovery... That's that right. Is... So for, for even the weak Adam Smith theorem to work, and I say it is weak because as we agree that it may be unfair, but even for that weak theorem to work, you need market prices to control for all the externalities that are being generated. Right. Okay, so you need, for example a comprehensive set of pollution licenses, right? Yeah. In, in the in, in the well-known example of pollution. Yeah, yeah. So it's yeah. it's a far, we are far, far away. We'll, I'll, I'll just ask you yeah. one question, Debraj, and yeah, then we'll sure, go to sure. the others. So we touched upon the notion of the market. Can, and market is not a phenomenon, it's a different kind of thing, but can it emerge? Yeah, so this goes back to the earlier discussion that we were having with, uh, with, with, with Bindu, which is... Um, this question of what, you know, she was saying that we need an orderly society in the first place for self-interest to take expression. I think I would retreat and think of uh, a, 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 a more abstract situation where you think of any environment, mm -hmm. orderly society, disorderly society, chaos, non-chaos, think of anything you like, okay? Because even social order... No, no, I was trying to say, not that for self-interest to emerge, but for self-interest to, to To have work, any value. To work. For it yeah, to for, work. For it to work. Yeah. Which, which in Fulfilling. evolutionary biology would be equivalent to saying that it's selected for. Okay, yeah. because yeah. For, for it to work. Okay. For, yeah. but, but just to finish my point, I'm saying, take any environment. In those environments, there will be some equilibrium selection. That selection may be for self-interest, it may be for orderliness, it may be for small groups. It depends on the game you're playing. Huh? It depends, on, it the depends game. on the game. Okay, but but I I keep I keep emphasizing this point because it can explain why you can start from a completely anarchic society, mm -hmm. and then generate markets or cooperative groups mm. as, as 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 a natural outcome, right? Mm. Mm. And then after those markets have been generated, 
then people taking advantage of them through self-interest. Mm. Okay, so mm. you can have cycles. You can have cycles where order periodically emerges. Then they're taken advantage of, and therefore and disorder happens. And then there is a new tendency for order to happen again. Right? No, that's interesting. Yeah. So, yes, yeah. Amita. perfect uh, sort of biological parallel to what bindu was just saying mm-hmm. and exactly the same notion that she said that in order for these uh, self interested players for their actions to actually be meaningful for the group there must be some group structuring or some some kinds of rule so this is exactly what we would argue in evolution also if you imagine again going back to the selection among individuals between groups and between between groups yeah. unless there is already some between group selection in place selection among individuals will not give rise to quote unquote suitable or beneficial group level characteristics most of the time you need group level selection for that to 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 happen and then there's the parallel to what devraj was saying exactly which is that so then once you have got so you're saying intra group selection doesn't have much meaning or efficacy without inter group as far as group level characteristics are concerned intra group selection will have great outcomes so what, as far as individual level characteristics so what are is concerned. a group level characteristic uh for example the proportion of altruists in a population which in could proportion. vary from 0% to 100% so some groups uh so so typically um uh, see altruism is not easily favored by selection acting between individuals it requires some peculiar circumstances such as kin groupings and so on right um in fact this notion that individual uh, pursuit of self interest rarely leads to the common good unless there are some commonly imposed rules by society is very old mm-hmm. uh to my mind maybe bindu can correct me if i'm getting this wrong i might have the name wrong i think this is there in the writings of gorgias in greece about 350 400 bc mm-hmm. and he specifically made this distinction in a discourse on the difference between human laws and natural laws and he sort of says that you know all human laws are basically designed to control people from exercising their selfish self interest all the time anyway adam smith did not invent the notion i mean he kind of uh, yeah well kept, i mean see the same notions that's always keep they coming keep back recurring. that's right yeah. the smithian notion is not about selection anyway Right. It's about right. the operation of markets, right. yeah. which is like a rest point of the process, not right. the process yes, itself. Yes, yes, absolutely. Right. Right. Actually, that's a, that's a very important point, which often gets obscured in many of the writings on these topics. This this can also be thought of Bindu in in in, in the sense of centralization, decentralization, right? Um, the markets. This, yeah, the markets, or even the way yeah. social order emerges or does not emerge, whether a society is anarchic or. orderly and so on yeah well so gandhi proposed a totally different way of looking at order mm. and spoke about decentralized order mm. so then you looked at the really small units and tried to build up from there mm. rather than build up from the top so you started building up from the ground and there was order at the smallest unit mm. and it mm. was not imposed from the top so that's another way of looking at it and that's why he was against centralized industries also and in favor of local village industries and everything so um 
yeah so you can look at this as centralization versus so what does that hinder does that hinder efficiency no, so but gandhi would say what kind of uh, you know one you're talking about economic interest and adam smith in 1934 gandhi commented that adam smith is talking about the human factor as the limiting factor and pure economic interest but i'm building my economics solely on the basis of this limiting factor the human element what's the limiting factor that you know so adam smith said that the human element is the limiting factor or the limitation in this free market economy right mm-hmm. and uh, so gandhi responded to that by saying that adam smith thought that the pure economic motive was really the important motive in building this kind of economics up but i am going to build up my alternative economics on the basis of the human element which of course was directly opposed to this you know economic element so gandhi thought everything you know all his economics was about need about uh, uh self limit want and yeah, self limitation self limitation uh, you know small is beautiful and sustained envi- sustaining the environment along with economic progress decentralization benefiting people uh, the needy people trusteeship bread labor i mean things which are directly opposed to the stuff that we are talking about so would you think of justice in equivalent terms to fairness is justice the same well, as fairness well uh, rolls for example the famous political philosopher he speaks about justice as fairness and this is now we are talking about a political conception of justice we are not really bringing in any religious notions what rolls would call comprehensive positions while talking about justice if we think about justice purely in terms of political virtues like civility cooperation fairness and so on uh this is like a very minimal conception of justice where we are thinking about a well ordered society between free and equal people then we assume that people are going to be able to pursue their self interest uh provided there is a well ordered society where uh, there are certain principles which everybody agrees to uh regulating their behavior in right. the interest of going to the common good and this uh, when we when we speak like that you are assuming that people are not only rational so that they have means and reasoning and can pursue their self interest but they are also reasonable which means that they are willing to propose fair terms of cooperation provided they have the assurance that reciprocally everybody else will do so but but the problem here but is but this kind of an action is socially conscious it's not just self interest self interest while being somewhat you social in some some no, shape or form no the idea right? is that you know if i want to pursue if i just want to be prudent if i part of being prudent is to recognize the effect of taking account of the interests of other people on my own interests mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. this is being prudent being rational is this a game theoretic setting i mean i wish it was because then we would live in a better society but i don't think so um i don't think prudence alone or what one might call enlightened self interest um right. leads to fair or efficient outcomes uh, i think even if people are extremely prudent uh they understand that the repercussions of their actions might come back to haunt them someday right um i still think that self interest is never enlightened enough uh to lead 
to common good outcomes is that because of limits of knowledge is that because of no it's an exa- it's 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 this when you know when if and when we have uh, children uh, will we be willing to give up all our wealth on our death so that it could be shared equally among all our children right i'd like to know if we were seriously asked that question how many of us would say yes right uh no amount of prudence no amount of enlightened self interest will lead us to answer yes to that question if your wealth is greater than the average wealth of the society which is the kin group point that you were making in a way right yeah. because so it may be that not really mm-hmm. not really in fact if if i could sort of yes please again intrude into this i think one distinction that again is often perhaps not emphasized enough when we draw some of these parallels of a selective process in biological evolution versus some kind of selective process happening in the economic sphere with human societies it has to do with what is it that is being selected or in some sense you know what debraj referred to earlier as what's the equivalent in the economy of the offspring you know what's the currency so to speak right uh, so the thing is that typically the currency of benefits so to speak at the individual level and the group level will be different this is often a point not made explicitly um in 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 biology it is very explicit because having lots of kids might do wonders for your individual fitness it is unlikely to do wonders for group fitness um so the characteristics that you are holding out as beneficial are actually different between the individual level and the group level and my suspicion is that it's probably the same a lot of the time in the economy as well uh, just maximizing profit at the individual level even if it means maximizing some similar kind of profit at a group level doesn't necessarily lead to socially desirable outcomes i guess so i think this this distinction is also important the 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 currency in terms of what you are defining what is beneficial at the different levels is actually different and in any process of selection what you select is exactly what you get if you if you <laughs> i mean i do experimental evolution in the lab if you select fruit flies to develop really fast and become adults you know in 50% of the time that their ancestors would have taken right. you get very rapidly developing flies who are useless at everything else right they're not very good at laying eggs they're not very good at doing anything but they develop really fast because that's what you're selected for yeah. and i think the same thing happens in the economic realm whatever you incentivize you get exactly that and nothing more and because the nature of the currencies at the different levels are different you probably won't get the outcome you want at the group level Can, for that you'll yeah. need group level selection yeah Mm. Can mm. I can I interject to that and Can can there be yeah. yes yes Yeah yeah I just wanted to follow up on that point I want to make your point stronger by saying even if the currencies are the same group level and individual uh, level selection absolutely. can be different okay Absolutely Imagine an organization can be or will be can be can can be well yeah I don't know will be is a very strong word yeah. but I can easily think of examples where they would be mm-hmm. So you know think of an organization where within that large organization everybody is looking out for making their own money yeah. okay uh the currency is money in this case in this yeah. example the organization goes to hell because each of us are involved in trying to make our own money when two such organizations meet 
one organization doing better in terms of corruption than the other, then in the same currency, money, right? Yeah. The healthier organization will drive out the corrupt organization. Yeah. So group level selection and individual level selection are in acting this case, in different. Healthier would be more corrupt. They're acting in different directions. No, no, healthier is the even less with corrupt. The same even currency. with yes. the same healthier currency. Healthier is the less corrupt. Absolutely. So, sorry, just to be clear, healthier yeah. in this your example less would be corrupt. Less, less corrupt. corrupt. Less corrupt, and therefore more making more money. So this is just the point that I was trying to make. Yeah, that absolutely. Even if you want to uh, pursue self-interest, you really got to work with other people. And therefore, you have to have at least a public pretense at just terms of cooperation mm. so that you can maximize that very self-interest that you were looking for. That's just the point I was I trying Debra to make. think has an issue with the word pretense. No, I don't have a... I'm saying minimally. I don't have an <laughs> issue with the word pretend, but I have an issue with the word should. I, 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 I find it very... No, should I should in the normative and ethical sense or should in the, in the sense that should Prudential. will be selected? Should in the sense that it would be selected. I don't believe so. Should in the normative or ethical sense, 100%. I agree with you. No, sure, sure. No, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm saying whether minimally. Whether that should will be no, but whether that should will actually happen, again goes back to uh, uh, Amitav's point. For example, on the relative strengths of individual versus group selection. If individual selection is very strong relative to group selection, then the should is not going to happen. No, yeah. but I think the question, okay. Amitav, is that why can't individual and group level selections work simultaneously or or phenomena or you know we can no, they, generalize they work it simultaneously much. i think what you are asking is why are they not selecting for the same thing yeah why why isn't there some that fairly high degree very, of convergence that so. very rarely happens uh it can happen and when that happens things evolve very fast in that direction that there's no there's no problem in some sense hmm. but usually what is you see the problem is that the 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 traits that promote the reproduction in the sense of budding of copies, let's say, or increasing in numbers of the group are very different from the traits that uh, increase the reproductive success of individuals. So for example, if you imagine a, a single population of individuals, uh, clearly in that population, individuals that produce more offspring per lifetime will eventually have their descendants dominating the numbers. Sure. Right. So fecundity is getting selected for increased fecundity by among individuals within group selection. Sure. But if you have a group that's very fecund, and if you look at the population numbers of that group over generations, they will tend to start showing you very violent oscillations, mm. falling very low every couple of generations and then shooting back up and then crashing. And at every one of those crashes, there is some non-zero probability that a small catastrophe could just wipe out the entire population. Mm. So over time, this population, which is made up of highly fecund individuals, all else being equal, will be more likely to go extinct. Mm. So at the group level of competition, this population will probably lose out to a population which has less fecund individuals, but less fecundity is not easily favored by natural selection at the individual level unless they're trade-offs with something else. So usually because the characteristics that will promote reproductive success at the group and the individual level are different. That is why there's this disconnect. Mm. Mm. So most of the time there is a disconnect. So, you know, I don't want to pose this in an anthropomorphic way, but how is it that the animal world is totally 
fine just living in the notion of efficiency i mean we we, we what notion of efficiency are you doing with no, I, mean, I, no i don't it, think it's totally fine yeah, i mean we we, I, we, yeah. we we are rapidly <laughs> wiping it out of existence no, no, in th- what sense do you think so it's I, fine so take the human beings out of the equation mm-hmm. and obviously most animals all animal societies no. are efficient animal societies Think of, pred- think of a predator. First of prey. all, they're not all societies, as he no, said. Yeah, they're just yeah. groups. They're But relatively they're few social animals. Social animals. Relatively few. Sure. sure. Especially sure. outside the mammals. Yeah. And But we I, were discussing about the vultures and how, uh, sure, you know. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That was. <laughs> yeah. That was very interesting. So. Mm. But even taking human beings out of the equation, mm. here's an example. Think of a predator-prey world. Okay. Uh, would 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 this mythian notion be okay at the animal no. world? No, no, because even the weak notion of efficiency fails. That's that's the example I'm going to give you. Uh, imagine the prey, in order to avoid the teeth of the predator, grows very thick skin. Right. The predator, in order to bite into the prey, grows very large teeth. Right. Okay. <laughs> the yeah but the, the the an evolutionarily stable equilibrium is very large teeth for the predator and very thick skin for the prey but it's more in- energy intensive at the level of the system exactly now imagine that god if he existed were to come down and pull back the size of the teeth and pull back the size of the Thickness of the of skin the, yeah. in equal proportion so that the bi- relative biting capacities were unchanged right then you would have improved efficiency Right? right you would have improved efficiency with the predator would be better off because it wouldn't have to spend so much energy on developing large teeth and the prey would be better off because it wouldn't have to spend so much energy on maintaining large skin right so the outcome of excessive tooth size and excessive skin thickness is inefficient even in the sense of pareto you mm. can make both the predator and the prey better, better off. off yeah makes sense in, in fact no i i completely agree you can find examples within the biological realm of these kinds of evolutionary arms races sometimes spiraling <laughs> back down to a a less intense equilibrium but yeah a lot of time they 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 are very inefficient i i think here just on a very historical note see darwin we know was somewhat inspired by adam smith's notion of selfish self-interest pursued leading to the greater good and he partly imagine that as the metaphor for selection mm. you know individuals striving in their selfish self interest in a competitive world nature red in tooth and claw and all that kind of thing right. but out of that you are getting a population of a species that is better adapted right to the environment and so on but today if you were to ask evolutionary biologists that picture seems uh, very honest. simplistic and very rosy and it's more like what devraj was trying to point out that very often see what happens is i mean a, a, a cancerous growth in your body is also a triumph of natural selection excellent it's yeah. it's hardly <laughs> beneficial either to itself in the long run or to the or organism the in which it's growing but it is a triumph of natural selection some organisms can be very successful just because they make more offspring not because they are better suited to the environment yeah their parasitic genetic elements that keep proliferating within your genomes they're not doing anything good for you they're just faster than your dna at making copies of themselves so ultimately it's the same problem you get exactly what you select for in yeah. this case the ability to make more copies and the copies. same thing would probably happen at this level if all people are 
following their self interest you get more of self interest individually but that doesn't right. lead to the greater good of the right. society right because for the society to move forward you need to have notions like justice and fairness yeah. and so on so you can utilize all this efficiency for just outcomes yeah. so what's the most extreme version bindu of everybody pursuing self interest what happens after many iterations Well, I mean, if everybody pursues self-interest, there would be huge clashes. There would be no uh, way that you can kind of uh, find out what is, uh, how would you do justice b- between all these outcomes? And so you would just uh, sort of spiral towards, uh, you know, economic and uh, largely environmental and uh, economic and social uh, non-coop kind of disconnected units. Mm. And this would. Lead to atomism, mm. social atomism, and ill-being of society. Yeah, I guess in the worst case you'll sort of completely destroy the fabric yeah. of society. In you'll the best them. case, you'll probably end up with a fairly nasty despotic hierarchy. Yeah. So I mean, in which they, case we'll be have like become well-being. a normal primate society. <laughs> yeah. Certainly, you wouldn't be going towards collective well-being of any kind. Yeah. Let's, you know, even if we take very nominal notions of well-being, we don't want to bring in, you know, goods like friendship, civility, and so on. We just want to talk about being rational, being prudential. We leave altruism out of the picture entirely. Even at a very minimal interpretation of well-being, we will not get well-being unless people are able to put aside the well-being. four principles which they have all agreed promote well-being and self-interest so people typically get together select principles which they believe are eventually to their self-interest but in order to be to their self-interest at points they are ready to put aside their self-interest for well-being of the whole thing provided other people reciprocally agree to do the same This is the kind of uh, you know paradox it sounds, but uh, but even very, that is very long winded, long term self interest, right? Not long term. Oh, you can vote on progressive taxation, for example, mm. but at an individual level, you may still want to save as much on taxes. Mm. But you might still vote because you know when you are voting, everybody else is has to do the same thing, right? So it. Uh, reciprocity is reciprocity very powerful. Reciprocity is built in. Yeah. So in some cases, you can do that. So Debraj. Even if everybody in the world, without pretense, without hypocrisy, wanted to make this Smithian notion work, it wouldn't work. No, yeah. Do, do, do you do you uh, understand no, the sense in which that I that was that? not my? Maybe Amita wants to say. I, I I'll just say that the what I wanted to say is that the Smithian notion itself very often has no clothes. Even the Smith, even if the Smithian notion is achieved. The outcome, while inefficient, while efficient, would be unfair. Could be extremely, extremely unfair. unfair. And there's nothing about the market system. There's no Adam Smith theorem that tells you that the market system is self-correcting in that sense. There's no theorem. So what is the what is the theory or theorem for fairness? The the theorem for fairness. Is can to answer that? Did you want to say something? No, we'll we'll okay. get to Amitabh. Let, let me let me give you an we'll example. Let me give you an example to show out. you how difficult that problem is. Mm. Okay, there is a mother and a father, and they are looking after their only child. The father believes that the child should be jointly cared for by the parents for twelve hours a day, twelve hours of love and care. After that, you are spoiling the child. The mother. believes that the child should be cared for 
12 and a half hours a day so after that you're spoiling the child mm. the mother and the father almost agree okay they only differ by half an hour okay now they start living their lives they start looking after the child now notice that whatever amount of time the mother is putting in the father puts in the remaining hours to add it up to 12 whatever number of hours the father is putting in the mother puts in the remaining hours to make it add up to 12, 12 and, and a half, half. yeah now this is how can this be right one guy is trying to get it to add up to 12 the other one is trying to get it to add up to 12 and a half what is the equilibrium of this game so the mother doing all the work yes the time. unique equilibrium of this game is one in which the mother does 12 and a half hours of work and the father puts in zero that's the only equilibrium now notice that this is a situation where i have created by the way the answer would be the same even if it was 12 hours and 1 minute yes. not 12 and a half hours 12 sure. hours and 1 minute so the the couple almost perfectly agrees on what they should do for their child and yet the equilibrium outcome is vastly unfair so how 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 much can we generalize this debrat so in a world where everybody has identical expectations and I- needs identical the argument but that doesn't fail. exist right <laughs> such a world doesn't exist so no, but i don't think no, we were starting off with identical no, no it's not a question it's not a, yeah, is yeah, different yeah, yeah. everybody's self yeah it's it's not a question of you're right that identical world doesn't exist but that is true but the point is is it's a philosophical example not a factual example right Fair. the kind you like right is a philosophical example in the sense that i'm trying to imagine a world which is almost giving the best shot to fairness and yet outcomes can be dramatically unfair so is a is a and again it's a strongly posed question is a fair world impossible no i don't think a fair world is impossible it's definitely worth striving for so we put it's that aside it's certainly worth striving for but is it impossible <laughs> mathematically okay. or whatever you know no, in, no. analytically right. what do you mean by fair I think I think we share some notion of what fairness yeah. is already. Well, it's, it's a, some very it's nominal a notion of fairness. It's still say. a difficult. Okay, so to understand, let's first understand the sources of disconnect in our world. Okay, mm. there are three sources of disconnect. Mm. The first source is where one person does a lot and the other person does very little. That's one kind of one kind of unfairness, if you like. In terms of input. yeah let's in terms of it, in maintaining an irrigation network or in having his own way when it comes to deciding who to invite on saturday night sure etc sure. right on <laughs> sideways let's call it sideways okay? sure then there are the worlds which are prisoners dilemmas mm. prisoners dilemmas are worlds of in which yeah where where you like the prey predator arms races where you go to the bottom the right. unique equilibrium is you go to the bottom yeah. okay and you leave a lot of surplus on the table yeah. right um The third kind of world is one in which there are two equilibria, mm. one which is good and one which is bad. Mm. Examples of that sort of world are currency crises. Mm. One day the peso is doing fine, everybody is holding the peso. The next day nobody is holding the peso. Mm. Why is nobody holding the peso? Because everybody believes that everybody else is not going to hold the peso, mm. right? So there are multiple equilibria, right? Mm. Uh, revolutions the arab spring is another example of multiple equilibria one day nobody is going to tahrir square the next day everybody is at tahrir square why am i at tahrir square if i went there alone i would probably get decapitated right yeah. so i am going there because i am in full belief using facebook or whatever that millions of other people are at tahrir square so revolutions are examples of multiple equilibria right so these are the three kinds of potential 
inefficiencies in layman's terms, right? Because the first one is not inefficient. Makes sense to you, Amitabh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Makes sense to you, Pindu? Yeah. Well, uh, I, I would I'm just trying to classify that question all. in a slightly different way. Huh. I think a really fair world, I won't go as far as to say that it is impossible because it's a very strong statement. Is highly, this highly, is, highly unlikely. It's an analytical question. I think you don't need to have ethical issues with this question. No, no, I, I, I'm not talking about ethical issues at all. I'm just saying, um, see, this is a point of view which is sometimes unpopular with many people in the world, which is to try to look into the biology for many explanations of human behavior. Yeah. But I would submit that, see, saying that something is biologically there is not equivalent to saying that therefore we should do nothing about it and not disturb it. <laughs> we, we, sure. we, we shouldn't be ordering our society being presumably enlightened uh, people who have given ourselves the the great title of Homo sapiens and your, all your poetry uh, and everything. The evidence suggests we are not that sapient, uh, but but see, so we could order our society in a better way. But we also, I think, need to appreciate that the the roots of biology are very deep, and the veneer of civilization is very thin. Uh, so, given that every primate <laughs> society, every primate society. We regress to our animal instincts pretty quickly. Yes, we do all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Patriotism. Sure. And xenophobia and chimpanzees, same phenomenon. We just call one patriotism and the other xenophobia. Sure. Uh, so the thing is, given that every single primate society is nepotistic and despotic, there's very little reason to believe that it will be easy for humans to break out of that. It but, uh, could be done, but it's very unlikely that you'll have a very fair society. In fact, this is my personal view. This is the reason why Marxism fails. But in it, your in, in the examples that you're taking from the primate world, Amitabh, I mean, are these... Is there, a, is there a selection problem? Is there a bias at work there? Are there other animal... No, no, I'm just saying that are, given that we are a primate... So I if mean, certain things sure. are true of tigers, leopards, lions, jaguars, they're probably going to be true of cheetahs as well. Yeah, but not you can't extend them to human beings. as. as huh, but yeah. primates, we are a primate. Sure. You see, we are so self-important, We first we call ourselves homo sapiens. Then we have put ourselves in a separate family in the classification of primates, which has just one genus, homo. <laughs> Whereas as pointed out long ago by Jared Diamond in this book, The Third Chimpanzee, he said that if a proper classically trained zoologist from Mars came down to the earth, he would say that there are three species of chimpanzee, one of which seems to have very little hair. <laughs> you know, by all the norms of zoology, we are a species of chimpanzee. Sure, that's okay. Is, is, is no, so fairness I, I, impossible? I would say that, uh, no, I think obviously perfect fairness or perfect, uh, justice or a ve as you were saying a very just society is uh, not something which is um, imminently going to happen but on, on the other hand I'll say a purely selfish society is also something equally uh, not likely to happen so uh, and there are a large number of reasons for that 
for one thing you know uh, like uh, i'll go back to justice as fairness with the uh, rolls and uh, he he basically argues that people would actually have uh, you know it would be part of their psychological makeup to try to see their own self interest as promoted by a situation where you know there are principles that regulate the society and things like reciprocity and so on are in place so uh, even if we don't go for normative considerations very minimally people so rolls for example says that if you do a thought experiment and assume a veil of ignorance people would uh, vote for principles of justice where they the least well off would be guaranteed some minimum standards because they would not know whether they are going to land up Oh, in need of social but, but, security and right. so on. But the problem with the Rawlsian argument is that you have to be placed in the original position, right? But that's uh, a behind thought the, experiment. No, I, no, I understand. But philosophically, A, it is not clear, by the way, that you would, uh, you would vote to protect, you would have the Rawlsian outcome, uh, which is the worst of maximize because you could have utilitarian outcome for example if i wanted to maximize my expected utility in the rawlsian position i would actually vote for the utilitarian outcome well, not for the rawlsian that, yeah, yeah he, he that, that's the and but the problem is that people after they're born are no longer in the rawlsian position and then they'll do anything to subvert uh, even if rawls could be installed at date 0 It's unclear that Rawls would continue at date one, two, three, four, right? But I guess the yeah. yeah sorry. sorry, what's the point? No, I was saying that uh, you know it could be part of self-interest. Even if we assume that everybody in society is self-interested, that notion of self-interest itself might lead people to sort of uh, agree to kind of. introduce some kind of reciprocal principles of concern for each They're other they're not necessarily at odds with each yeah, other yeah not necessarily is at odds is there a problem with that but well, that's the discussion we were having yeah. right. i was uh, i was asking whether that and was. and the point that you're making debraj is that one is always born with endowments or lack thereof so i'm afraid so yeah mm. i mean there is no such thing as square one in real life yeah. so saying just to add a little bit uh, on to this argument See, I think on the one hand, um, when when I said that a fair society is very unlikely, I'd like to qualify that statement: an extremely fair society. It's unlikely in two senses. It's very unlikely to come into being. It is also very unstable. It's it's not a stable equilibrium at all. Mm. Uh, a, a reasonably corrupt, reasonably despotic society is an extremely stable equilibrium, actually, whether we like it or not. Uh, see so your the, dictatorships the, being the, perfect. The two hundred and fifty-year-old experiment of rule of law in certain parts of northwestern Europe is already going back towards the reasonably corrupt, reasonably despotic thing. Uh, the other point I want to make is is again just building up on on some of these points that both Devraj and Bindu are making. You see, I think it's also not a great idea, although we often do that. to think in terms of a dichotomy in human societies between the individual and the society uh, there are multiple levels of groups in between mm-hmm. there's the individual there's the extended family the clan mm-hmm. regional groupings within the society and what you find is there are reasonable levels of fairness in those sub societies within the clan group 
based on a lot of reciprocity, as Bindu was pointing out, there are actually reasonable levels of fairness. So you, yeah. even yeah. if we were to use the metaphor of invisible hand, even that has hierarchies. It works. Yes, at, yes. I think the the invisible hand is a is a very multi level thing. It's not just the individual and then the whole society. Sure. They, they're all this this. I mean, society to 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 borrow a term from our line of work is a very substructured population it's not just one homogeneous thing so there there's also probably a hierarchy of how fair the groups are as you go up the hierarchy you get slightly less fair but i i would just like to say something that when we talk about reciprocity and so on i feel that uh, what we fail to see is at some point there are some moments in that society and subgroup who are categorically uh you know unconditionally reasonable and unconditionally cooperating with other people not looking for reciprocity because otherwise we would just have chain endless circles and regresses so i would look to you are you going to you know do this for me then reciprocally i am going to offer you fair terms uh and so on but all through these subgroups in families in kins in tribes there are those moments of unconditional uh, you know uh, yeah. terms yeah. being offered and it's often we much start more out these circles yeah. so they're almost irrational right they're not yeah no. well they're not they're reasonable they're not irrational i'll go back to the rolzian dichotomy of the rational, rational and, reasonable, and reasonable and i'll say that there are all these reasonable people mm. who just offer fair terms of cooperation for their own sake and that starts the circles but but one little detective clue that it could be rational on top of being reasonable is what uh, amitav said is that as you make the groups larger and larger mm -hmm. statistically the amount of cooperation is going to fall right okay now that suggests that in smaller groups there's greater chance of you know for example if i'm insuring you you're my extended family there's a chance i'll be in trouble you need to insure me right right so the rationality of me behaving better with my extended family is simply because my extended family will often be in a situation where i can draw on them for help right if i meet a stranger on the street it's right. not it's not that i'm going to knock him over the head of course right. but certainly i'm not going to if he asks me for some for 500 rupees i'm not going to on average on average sure. there are people who do that are not going to give it to him and there's a very rational reason for that is which is that the that reciprocity is a more distant conjecture in the latter case right no, that in the absolutely so, so and another yeah, yeah. thing which strengthens this argument even more is that when you look at like kin groups the reciprocity can be very diffused it doesn't even have to be direct if yeah. i helped three of my cousins yeah. i have a certain reputation in my kin group That's which correct. is small enough for me to have that reputation that this guy helps out tomorrow when i am in trouble a fifth or seventh cousin might help me out even though i never helped them because of that <laughs> no it it yeah, actually yeah. works yes, that yes, way yes 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 yeah. no, and this again gets dissipated when mm. the group is much bigger and your third cousin might help the eighth cousin because they know that it's good thing to help and the yeah. reciprocity is between altruism and selfishness yeah and yeah, i'm yeah, saying absolutely. reciprocity started off by genuinely altruistic moments where yes. people unconditionally yeah. help others but if that were the case its signature would be that the extent of reciprocity should be constant regardless of group size mm. if it genuinely has an altruistic roots and it may be true okay its statistical signature should be that it should be constant irrespective of group size why yeah, because if it's altruism circles, it doesn't matter how big the group no, is no maybe the circle start off with in small groups with some one moment which is altruistic and then 
it works up some because if there was but then you'd no, have to answer the question of why am i more altruistic towards someone who's closer to me no well because you are doing it because of expecting reciprocally others to do it for you exactly but so i'm saying if it was only built up like that how would it start if you look to me and i look to you yeah. so at some moment somebody did it without waiting for sure, the other sure, person sure. to do in in that restricted sense yeah, yes yeah. yeah i i think in, in the broader sense i completely agree with what debraj was saying about the statistical signature yeah. but yeah in in the in the very restricted yeah. sense of the initial point somebody yes. has to have been yes, able to, to do this in, without waiting for in, someone else to do it in fact there's a huge amount of literature in this in evolutionary biology notably by robert trivers who's a very interesting yeah, person he, he actually coined the term reciprocal altruism in in biology yeah what is uh, why don't we spend the last couple of minutes thinking about this what is worth striving for what is worth striving for what is stri- worth striving for in my view is a just society but within certain incentive constraints so to go back to this question of whether fairness is attainable imagine a world where we all owned uh 1 over n of the world of the world's income okay like alaska like the alaska common dividend right behind universal basic income for everyone that world as uh amitabh is saying would that be an equilibrium it can i don't think it can be stable and the reason it cannot be stable is the following imagine that you gave you revise these shares once every 100 years <laughs> so for those 100 years you could accumulate right then there would be a huge incentive for me to accumulate but it things would become very unequal Now imagine that you cut down from the hundred years and said that the shares have to be re-equalized every day. Right. Then the incentive to accumulate would drop to zero. Right. Because the shares are going to get re. Okay. So there is an optimal number. How do you think of that mathematically? I don't know. So there's an optimal number somewhere between zero and one hundred years for which people should be allowed to accumulate. Does it have to do with the lifetimes? maybe with our lifetimes and maybe you know so i think philosophers should cogitate on this question of what is worth striving for what is striving worth striving for is how much of private property do we respect in order to build at least a prosperous society because if we don't respect it at all we won't have a prosperous society what is worth striving for amitabh i'm going to give you a very personal and very individual based self interest i'm not even sure if you'd call it self interest uh answer i think the thing that is worth striving for is good poetry i was going to say <laughs> and 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 in justification i'll just add one line in urdu which is to say ki afraad ki is duniya se to alfaz ki duniya behtar hai what does that the mean the world of words is far more beautiful and and pleasant than the world of people afraad that's people <laughs> We'll end well, with you, Bindu. What's I'll say a just for? society is one which is uh, where we try at least to, or a society worth striving for would be one where we try to reduce these levels of consumption, and we also think about doing justice not just to men but also to nature as a significant other, hmm. not just animals but the, you know, the ecological space. Significant other. Yeah. Otherwise, nature will do justice to us, and we won't <laughs> like it. <laughs> and like uh, self interest again <laughs> well i i meant it categorically yes, and unconditionally <laughs> thank you that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it thank, thank you. you look forward to having you soon again thank you it was a great thank pleasure thank you very much